I recently heard a story about this brilliant young entrepreneur who relatively early in life had come across just a striking amount of success. By a fairly young age, he already had more money than he would ever need. Uh, no one in his field could even compete with his level of knowledge or achievement. And quite frankly, he just seemed to excel at everything to which he put his mind. So eventually, this young man became a little bit restless, and he decided to take this journey around the world in search of any and all wisdom that he could find. Several months into this journey, he heard of an elderly man who lived in a remote village in one of the far corners of the earth. So our young friend hastily made his way to this village. And when, after traveling several weeks to get there, he finally tracked down this old man, he excitedly said, I want you to teach me everything that you know. I want to be your student. I am so eager to learn. And then the young man started to tell the old man all about who he was, everything that he had done, the fortunes that he had amassed, the companies that he had launched, the degrees that he had earned. And as he was talking, the old man sat down at the table across from him and began pouring a cup of tea. And as the young man continued to talk and talk, the old man continued to pour and pour until eventually the teacup had filled to the top, had spilled over into the saucer, had formed this huge puddle on the table, and was now just streaming continuously onto the floor. And then the young man took notice and he said, hey, stop, can't you see? The cup is full, nothing else will fit. And that's when the old man spoke for the first time. He said, you, are like this cup, so full that nothing else will fit. Anything more I pour in will be wasted. Go away and come back as an empty cup. When you do, then I can teach you everything that I know. I had to laugh when I first heard that story a few weeks ago because it reminded me of a mistake that we often make as students of the Bible. Sometimes we come into our study of scripture with our cups so full of everything we think we already know that there's just absolutely no room for anything else to fit. Now, sometimes we come into our study with our cups partially full of things that are good and right and helpful to our further understanding of the text, but sometimes we come in with things that aren't helpful, with misplaced expectations, with wrong assumptions, with a poor understanding of the text. And those things make it difficult for us to see what the Lord wants to reveal. So it's important for us to keep that tendency in our mind always, but it's especially important for us to remember that tendency when we come into a portion of scripture that seems to challenge our understanding of who God is or what we think he should or should not do. So as we get ready to jump into a particularly challenging portion of scripture tonight, let's do so with cups that have been emptied. Ready for God to teach us instead of eager to tell God everything that we think we already know. So we are quickly approaching the end of the book of Numbers, and through these last several weeks of scripture, we have seen the Lord purposely preparing his people for the place of promise. In fact, these last two weeks of study, which have covered five chapters of scripture, numbers 26 through 30, has been almost exclusively spent preparing the people for what is soon to come. 
And this week, as we move into chapter one, the Lord reminds Moses of one final piece of unfinished business to which he must attend before he can die and the Israelites can enter into the land. So let's start reading tonight in chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, execute vengeance for the Israelites against the Midianites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, equip some of your men for war. They will go against Midian to inflict the Lord's vengeance on them. Now, if you've been paying attention, then this command shouldn't have been a surprise to you. Back at the end of Numbers 25, after the Midianites had conspired with the Moabites to curse the Israelites, after the Peor incident in which the Midianites had attempted to undermine the Israelites' faithfulness to the Lord, after those events, the Lord had told Moses that this attack was going to be on his final to-do list. And these first few verses that we have in Numbers chapter 31 go out of their way to make abundantly clear that this attack on the Midianites was not something that was prompted by the Israelites. This was a direct command from the Lord. It's so important that we know that that it's emphasized two times in these first few verses of chapter 31. This was the Lord's vengeance. Now, you may not particularly like the idea of a vengeful God, right? Of a God who brings down his wrath upon humanity. And our natural inclination to kind of push back against that notion of God is a really good example of one of those things that makes our cup so full that we can't take in a good and right understanding of the text. So let's go ahead and address that. Last November, The Economist, which is a highly influential periodical based out of London, ran an article whose title proclaimed, God is becoming more liberal. And the subtitle warned, traditionalists should brace themselves for change. So here's an excerpt from the article. Smiting used to be so simple. God smote and the people trembled and they sometimes died. He smote the rebellious Israelites, tens of thousands died. The firstborn Egyptians, they all died, and the Philistines. The Sodomites suffered a particularly striking smiting. So after detailing many of the different smitings of the Old Testament, the article went on to point out the many evidences of God becoming less judgmental and more loving and more accepting over time. The author finally concluding that few in Britain celebrate a smitey almighty today. Clever. <laughs> but what we as Bible-believing Christians must attest to is the fact that God does not become anything. It is impossible for God to become more judgmental. It is even impossible for him to become more loving or more accepting. It is impossible for God to become because he simply is. And he is now 
what he has always been. And that is one of the reasons why it is so important that those of us who hold firmly to scripture know what we are supposed to do with chapters like this, with material like we have here in Numbers 31, because this God, the God who ordered the destruction of the Midianites, he is the God that we worship. We indeed do worship a God who takes vengeance against sin. And that is what is happening here in Numbers 31. That was what was happening when he smote the rebellious Israelites and the firstborn Egyptians and the Philistines and the Sodomites. And it does not serve us well to turn a blind eye to this material or to try to explain it away by creating, creating some sort of false distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Look at me. No such distinction exists. He is the same yesterday, he is the same today, he is the same tomorrow, or he is not God. In fact, the book of Malachi makes extremely clear that the only reason why we have not all been destroyed by this point is because of that fact that God does not change. Scripture also reveals that God's love, that his goodness, that his kindness is completely consistent with his justice and his wrath and his righteousness, so much so that we can't even adequately understand God's love apart from an understanding of the threat of his wrath. So I don't want to dumb this topic down too much, so please excuse me for what I understand to be a rather trite example. But just the other day, one of my boys said something to his brother that was just downright mean. Like, it, it was just hateful. And, and I could immediately see the effect that it had on the boy to which it was said. And it made me furious at my son. So I took that offending boy aside. And by the time I finished my discussion with him, he had a very good understanding of how angry his mother was. Now, it would not have been loving of me to allow the wrong that had been done to my one son to go unnoticed or undisciplined, and neither would it have been loving of me to allow the other son who had done the thing to go undisciplined. In the same way, Scripture reveals that God's love is just intricately connected to his wrath. It cannot be separated from it. Now, as we're considering God's command here for the Israelites to strike the Midianites dead, something that's very important for us to remember is that the Israelites had already suffered for their uh, crimes that they committed with the Midians, right? If you remember back, a plague had come upon them. It had killed 24,000 of them, and there's no telling how many more would have been lost had not Phineas intervened. So their sin, both the sin of the Midianites and the sin of the Israelites, had brought down the wrath of God upon them. And the only difference between the Israelites and the Midianites is that someone intervened on the Israelites' behalf. And that was by no means even the first time that the Israelites had met with the judgment of God. 
right? The Lord had threatened the Israelites with extinction several times throughout the course of Exodus and Numbers. And in each instance, the only reason why God relented was because Moses' interceded on their behalf. Additionally, we just watched an entire generation of Israelites die in the wilderness, and this was judgment. It was punishment that God gave them because they had rebelled against him in Numbers chapter 14. So despite any expectation you had when you came into the study of Numbers, this has not been a boring book. Right? We have seen plagues. We have seen fire. We have seen the ground just opening up and swallowing the rebellious. And I say all of that to make the point that God used the same principles to govern judgment inside Israel as he used to govern judgment outside of Israel. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. Not just the wages of the Midianite sin or the Israelite sin or their sin back in Old Testament times, but the wages of sin is death. The Bible teaches that we are all born sinful, which means that the wrath of God is upon us all unless someone intervenes on our behalf. Now, many of us, even in this room today, celebrated Sunday together the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter five delivers the very good news that Christ's death on the cross saves any of us who believe in him from that wrath. And I do think that it's worth mentioning that the wrath of God that has previously been revealed to mankind is but a fraction of the wrath that is yet to come. The book of Revelation gives us some insight into some of the events that will occur when Christ returns to this earth. And chapter 19 tells us that with justice, he will judge and make war. That the armies of heaven will follow after him and that at that time, he will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. So I say again that the wrath of God that has previously been revealed to mankind is but a fraction of the wrath that is yet to come. So we show no kindness to our fellow man by ignoring this wrath or by trying to downplay it. Here in Numbers 31, the Israelites had already met with their judgment from God, and now the Lord commands that the Midianites be met with theirs. Let's pick up in verse 7. They waged war against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses and killed every male. Along with the others slain by them, they killed the Midianite kings, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. So we're told here that every male was killed. Later in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Judges, we're going to see the Midianites show up again. So that could understandably cause a little confusion. 
So what you want to understand about the Midianites is that they are a nomadic people. They're a confederation of tribes who were associated with several other people groups in the Old Testament. So the Moabites here, but also the Ishmaelites and the Amalekites. So what we likely have happening is that all the Midianites of this particular tribe, the tribe associated with Moab, who were at camp the day of the raid, being killed. And it specified that this included five kings, probably better understood to us as five leaders or five tribal heads. And you may have recognized one of those names because he was introduced to us back in chapter 25 as the father of Cosby, who was the woman that Zimri had brought into camp, the same woman that Phineas later slayed. So, and I'm sure none of you missed the fact that Balaam was listed as those who were killed at Midian. Now, that should have struck you as very interesting. Back in Numbers chapter 24, after the Lord had delivered his fourth and final oracle through Balaam, we read in verse 25 that Balaam then arose and went back to his homeland and Balak also went on his way. So if in chapter 24, Balaam had went back to his homeland, then why on earth would he have been with the Midianites here? We know from other references in scripture that after Balaam failed to curse the Israelites, that he continued working with Balak and with the people of Moab and with the people of Midian in order to bring harm to the Israelites. So we see that Balaam failed to believe the words that the Lord spoke to him when he said that those who bless Israel will be blessed, but that those who curse Israel will be cursed. What I found so intriguing about the account of Balaam here, as I was thinking this account over, was that none of the soldiers of Israel would have had any idea who Balaam was, right? They wouldn't have known him from any other man in Midian. There was no way at this point where they would have known who Balaam was or what he had done. But the Lord knew. Jeremiah 16, 17 says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. On one hand, it should be a very great comfort to us that the Lord sees and he knows even that which we believe to be hidden. But on the other hand, it serves also as a warning to us. The Lord sees and the Lord knows even that which we believe to be hidden. That is so good that it has been my mothering trump card for like a year now, right? Now that my boys are getting old enough where they think they're a little smarter than me, and sometimes when I'm pretty sure they're lying, but I'm not 100% sure, I'll just say, God knows. And then I'll drop that and just see what, <laughs> see what they do with it. 
As we continue on into verses 9 through 12, we see that the Israelites sack and plunder the cities where the Midianites lived. The men we know were killed, but we're told here that the women and the children were taken captive and that this greatly distresses Moses when he hears about it. We're told in verse 14 that Moses was furious with the military commanders. So let's read in verse 15. Have you let every female live? He asked them. Yet they are the ones who, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's community. So now kill every male among the dependents and kill every woman who has gone to bed with a man. But keep alive for yourselves all the young females who have not gone to bed with a man. So I'm just guessing that this probably was not your favorite portion of scripture as you studied this week. So let's be really intentional in emptying out our cups and going through it together. As we faithfully study the Bible, we are going to come across things that do not make sense to us. We are going to come across things that we simply do not understand. And every time that that happens, especially when we come to portions like we have tonight, where it's beyond just not understanding, but it actually tempts us to believe that the Lord was wrong, right? That he acted unjustly or unfairly or perhaps even unmorally in a situation. Whenever that happens, then we are given the opportunity to practically Walk out the words of Proverbs 3, 5. To trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. So in the face of admittedly difficult material, we have at least two truths that we can stand on. The first is that God is the only one who sees everything perfectly. The second is that God is the only one who always acts perfectly. So with those two things in mind, when we come to a section of scripture where we are very tempted to think that what God did or what God said was wrong, we instead need to consider the question, how should I be seeing this based on what God said or based on what God did, trusting that we can trust his judgment and his estimation of the situation. We want to come to the place, ladies, where we instinctually begin trusting the opinion of God more than we trust our own opinion. So we're given the explanation for the killing of the women right there in the text. Moses said, they are the ones who incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord. So the women would be justly judged for the sin that they had committed. But I also want you to notice that the women who were not guilty of the sin were not sentenced to death. They were allowed to become wives of the Israelite soldiers or they could become servants. And in both cases, there were protections for those women in the law of Israel. And we walked very carefully through many of those laws when we studied through the book of Exodus together. So we know that each one of them would have been given the opportunity to simply be incorporated into the people of Israel. 
Now, when we look at the command to kill the male Midianite children, there are a couple of things that we need to consider. The first is that during this time frame, tribal warfare was rampant. So the risk of allowing the male Midianite children to live was that when they grew up, they would seek revenge on behalf of their fathers. Additionally, the Midianites were known for such deplorable practices as child sacrifice, cold prostitution, and bestiality, all of which the Lord had strictly forbade. So the continuation of this culture would have been a perpetual problem for the Israelites as we will see as we continue to work our way through the Old Testament. So listen, I don't like this topic any more than anybody in here does, but the more I study scripture, the more opportunity I have been given to really think about and really wrestle with topics like this one. And over time, that wrestling has produced within me a willingness to trust the Lord with those things that I don't understand. And I will be the first to admit that this is very difficult to understand. But what we must acknowledge is that God is the giver of life. He is the one that has made life. He is the one that sustains life. He is the one to which every life belongs. If it were not for God's gift of life, none of us in here would have it. And also, another fact is that because of the effect of sin on this world, at some point, every single one of us will also die. And ultimately, those two things, both our life and our death, in every circumstance across every time, those two things are ultimately in the hand of God. At the end of the day, he is God and we are not. He sees perfectly, we see woefully, imperfectly. He is the very essence of goodness and truth and light. And at the very best, the only thing that we can do is simply try to imitate him in each of those things. But I think most importantly, he is the creator and we are the created. And as such, none of us are qualified to pass judgment on him. Job tried that once, and this is what the Lord said to him. God said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then the Lord goes on for 40 verses after that, listing all of the ways in which Job is simply unqualified to judge him. So I think we can take a lesson from Job and that all of us should be very careful to not speak words without knowledge. So one final thing that I want you to see as we wrap this topic up, we saw back in chapter 25 that Phineas, in his zeal for the holiness of the people of God, he acted ruthlessly 
against Zimri and Cosby. And concerning those actions, God said of Phineas that he was zealous among them with my zeal. So here, in the Lord's command to the Israelites to completely wipe out the Midianites, we see God re-emphasizing that very same message. The Israelites were to completely destroy the things that had lured them into sin. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Women, we are to completely destroy those things that entice us to sin. We are to put to death those things within us that do not honor that are not faithful to the Lord. Let's go back to the text and pick up in verse 19. You are to remain outside the camp for seven days. All of you and your prisoners who have killed a person or touched the dead are to purify yourselves on the third day and on the seventh day. So the Lord continues on from verses 20 to 24 to command that everything, not just the people, but also all of the goods that had been contaminated, that had come in contact with death, all of it had to be purified. Now, earlier in our study of numbers, we uh, learned about the contamination that was caused by death. It was discussed in chapter 5, and it was discussed in chapter 19. So here, this need for purification stands as a reminder to us that even under the most honorable of circumstances, the death of a fellow human represents what Wyndham calls a catastrophic disruption of God's creation. It reminds us that even though the Lord himself commanded that these people be put to death, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The very existence of death stands as a reminder of the fallen nature of humankind. Verse 25, the Lord told Moses, you, the priest Eleazar, and the family heads of the community are to take account of what was captured, people and animals. Then divide the captives between the troops who went out to war and the entire community. So in verses 25 through 30, the Lord commands a division of the people and the animals and the possessions of the conquered party. The spoils were to be divided equally between the warriors who fought and the remainder of the Israelites. But since there were far fewer warriors than there were other Israelites, proportionally, each warrior would have a much greater share. And that makes a lot of sense, that the people who went out and put their lives on the line would actually be more richly compensated. And then it says that everyone had to donate their fair share to the priest and the Levites, and this was per the Lord's earlier instruction in Numbers 18 that the priest and the, Eli and the Levites be cared for through the gifts of the people. Verse 48, the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, approached Moses and told him, 
Your servants had taken a census of the fighting men under our command, and not one of us is missing. So we have presented to the Lord an offering of the gold articles each man found to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. As chapter 31 concludes, we see the supernatural care of the Lord for his people being highlighted by the report that not a single Israelite warrior was missing. The warriors immediately recognize this for what it is, simply the unmerited favor and protection of the Lord, and so they respond to him by giving an offering. And this presents us with a really important lesson. I think that actually we see the lesson all throughout chapter 31. You know, we've seen this back and forth between God and his people through this chapter. The Lord provided instruction to the people, and, and the people responded to the Lord's restriction with their obedience and with their trust, even though it was a very hard thing to obey and to trust. And so the Lord responded to their obedience and trust through his protection and his care of them. And they recognized the Lord's protection and care for him. And so then they responded with offerings and with worship. So we see this really beautiful pattern of interaction between the Lord and his people throughout this chapter. And I think that that is something that we easily could have missed had we not emptied out our cups before we jumped into this chapter of scripture. So as we move into chapter 32, we see that the Israelites have now conquered quite a bit of real estate on their way toward the land of promise. So they now have possession of all the Midianite cities, and we know from earlier in this study in chapter 31 that they had already conquered three other kings and that they had possession of all of that land and all of those cities as well. So that is what sets the scene for what happens next. Let's read in 32.1. The Reubenites and Gadites had a very large number of livestock. When they surveyed the lands of Jazer and Gilead, they saw that the region was a good one for livestock. So the Gadites and Reubenites came to Moses, the priest Eleazar, and the leaders of the community and said, verse 5, if we have found favor with you, let this land be given to your servants as a possession don't make us cross the Jordan. So that's really interesting, right? I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to make of that request when I was first studying this material. I mean, on one hand, I could certainly see why the Gadites and the Reubenites might make this request. I mean, they had won this land. The Lord had given it to them through hard-fought battles. They had never in the course of their entire life had the opportunity to settle in one place for any length of time. And this land seemed to be so perfectly situated for that which these tribes excelled, which was raising livestock. But as soon as we come to Moses' response, we are immediately clued into the fact that there might be some other factors at play. So we are given yet another opportunity to empty our cups of our own thoughts and our own assumptions and understanding regarding the text to see what we can learn. And the first thing that we must notice is that Moses' response to these tribes' request is 
absolutely scathing. Right? He called them a brood of sinners, which is exactly what I've been saying to my boys lately. I think it's <laughs> biblical and catchy, right? So he condemned their lack of consideration for the other tribes. He accused them of shirking their responsibility in battle. Moses held that their actions would be a discouragement to the other tribes, and he likened what they were doing here to what the spies did when they brought back the negative report of the land. So he obviously saw this as uh, an act of disloyalty toward the Lord. And he thought, of course, that it was a means of them turning away from following them. So we look at Moses' response. We begin to gain an understanding of this material that is below that of what we first saw on the surface. And it gives us an opportunity to pause and consider how this request must have come off to Moses. Moses, who knows he's going to die very soon. Moses, who will not cross into the land with the people. Moses, who had begged the Lord for just a sight of this land. And here you have these tribes who seem perfectly okay with just forfeiting it. Let's read in verse 16. It says, then they approached him and said, we want to build sheep pens here for our livestock and cities for our dependents, but we will arm ourselves and be ready to go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them into their place. Verse 18, we will not return to our homes until each of the Israelites has taken possession of his inheritance, yet we will not have an inheritance with them across the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance will be across the Jordan to the east. Moses replied to them, if you do this, if you arm yourselves for battle before the Lord, and every one of your armed men crosses the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies from his presence, and the land is subdued before the Lord, afterward you may return and be free from obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will belong to you as a possession before the Lord. But if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord and be sure that your sin will catch up to you. So Moses' strong reaction awakened the two tribes to their duty regarding the other Israelites. And together they come to an agreement regarding how to proceed. And Moses makes arrangements to see that that agreement will be honored. So even after everything that Moses had said to them, these two tribes still wanted to settle on the land east of the Jordan. And what's so surprising, at least it was to me, is that apparently that was their choice to make. They were allowed to make that call. So before we leave this chapter behind, I do want you to understand that what the Gadites and the Reubenites were suggesting was a complete departure from the original plan that the Lord had set forth. The consistent biblical definition of Canaan was the land that lay to the west of the Jordan River. So the land that those tribes ended up settling on was not technically the land of God's promise. 
and it would mean a divided Israel with part of the tribes in the land of promise and part of the tribes outside the land of promise. So when we look at it that way, we see that what these tribes wanted was to stop just short of the place that the Lord had prepared for them. And it may well have been a very good place, but it was not God's place. And that made me stop and wonder how many times I've made the exact same decision that those tribes have made. How many times I grew so content and so satisfied and even happy with the place that I was that I did not press on to the place where I knew the Lord was calling me to be. God's place is always the best place for us. And the fact that the Lord allowed these tribes to have the land that they requested should cause us to think very, very carefully about the requests that we make of the Lord because apparently he takes those requests into consideration. So when we're asking something of the Lord, what we want to do is make sure that we are seeking his will first instead of becoming so attached to our own. As we persist, ladies, in the pursuit of the Lord through the study of his word, we are often going to be reminded of our own temptation to come into our study of scripture with our cups already full, full of the things that we think we know, the assumptions that we have, the expectations that we have of God, and the understanding that we have of the material. And we will also consistently be challenged to empty our cup of those things so that we can more rightly and more fully come to know him. Well, it has been a joy with you tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are over all. Indeed, that you know and you see all things, that nothing is concealed from you, nothing is hidden from your sight. God, you are sovereign and you are true. You are the giver of life, Lord. All of these things lie in your hands. Lord, Lord we know that you are a God who indeed does take vengeance against sin. God, we know that that is just yet another sign of your perfect love for us. God, I ask that we would bow in submission to these things that we have learned, Lord, that you would turn our hearts, God. We thank you that you are so patient with our understanding, with our lack of understanding, with our misunderstanding, God. We ask that you would forgive all of the ways that we have turned you into something that you never claimed to be. God, we know that you are better than anything we could imagine. So we ask, God, that you would slowly reveal to us more of that and awaken our hearts to the truth of all that you are. I thank you for this night, Lord, and I pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, who saves. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand, let's respond, and let's meditate with a song of worship.
Let's see.